the men are, I'm grateful, handing out the study sheet for today. And um, if you would, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. That's the main place we're going to be taking our lesson today. I have an author that I'm fond of. I haven't read him recently, but uh, he's, he's somebody who's a favorite of mine. William Goldman. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, which some of you, if you're old enough, have seen. And, uh, and he also wrote what is a, now a cult classic, The Princess Bride. And uh, also, those of you who are old enough. Uh, in both of those stories, there's a moment where uh, you are watching people trying to get away and they are being pursued by unknown people. In Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, there's a whole group of guys with horses and guns. They're chasing them across the landscape. They end up having to jump off a cliff. In The Princess Bride, there's one guy chasing a whole group of guys, and he just keeps getting closer, and they end up having to climb a cliff, and he climbs after them. But in both stories, the same kinds of questions get asked. Who is that? Who are those guys? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid asked. In The Princess Bride, who is that man in black? Why is he chasing us? Who is that? I'm going to tell you something important about the Gospel of Mark. There is a real sense in which the Gospel of Mark revolves around the question, Who is that? Who is certainly the first eight chapters of Mark plant the seeds of that question in so many different ways. Who is that? People can't figure Jesus out again and again and again. Mark tells us stories and the reaction of the people around it. Who, who is this guy? Why is he like the way he is? He, he teaches and he heals in the synagogue in Capernaum. And the people were so amazed, they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he gives orders even to impure spirits. And they obey him. He, he heals the man that was paralyzed, let down through the roof. And some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is surrounded by a huge crowd. They're coming and going so much he can't even eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of them. For they said, he's out of his mind. The teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Jesus calms a storm. Just stands up from asleep and just says, and in Mark, it's almost this blunt, shut up. And all of a sudden, the whole storm just, okay, sorry. I mean, it just gets quiet instantly. And naturally, his disciples asked the question. They were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus goes to his hometown, to Nazareth, and people there uh, don't believe in him. And the reason they don't, and they say, where did this man get these things? 
What wisdom is this that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And I took offense at him. Who is this guy? A little bit later in chapter 6, Herod hears about Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the twelve that Jesus sent out. He heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known, and some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, no, he's Elijah. Still others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. <coughs> when Herod heard about this, he said, it's John, who I beheaded, who's been raised from the dead. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? In Jesus' time, people were saying all kinds of things about Jesus. Not much has changed. If you go on the Internet, which you should do with caution, Christians, but if you go on the Internet and, and today type in the question, who is Jesus? You will get Actually, a far greater range of opinions than the ones that Mark records happened in the time of Jesus. Jesus is an ascended being. He learned the mysteries of Buddhism. He lived in India for a while, and that's why he had the powers. That... Jesus was a magician. He learned how to do magic down in Egypt, and that's why he had the powers. That... Jesus never even existed. Jesus is just made up from a bunch of Old myths from Egypt and Syria and various... Jesus was just a man. And the church invented all these stories about... Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Buddha. Jesus is an angel. Jesus is... It goes on and on and on and on. It can be discouraging... To me, it's discouraging that today, 2,000 years later, it seems like the world is no closer to answering the question, who's Jesus? I don't think, you know, thinking about it, I don't think we should be too surprised that people are confused about who Jesus is. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament well, I have a lot of favorite passages, as you know, but one that's always amused me and struck me is Proverbs 30. And here we have someone, maybe Solomon, maybe somebody else who's equally wise like Solomon, who's collected all this wisdom and analyzed it and, and preserved it for us. And this wise person says this, three things are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on the rock. The way of a ship on the seas. And the way of a boy with a girl. I love that last one. I think the last one is kind of the point of the other three. Boys and girls falling in love with each other is really weird. Have you ever watched people fall in love? You know, from inside, it feels one way. From outside, how does it look? Let's be honest. We, we can, we, we're, we're among friends here. How does it look when two people fall in love? 
they look, my wife just mouthed, goofy. And that's right. That's right. Uh, people who fall in love from outside just look crazy. They just look, okay, fine, if you like her, I don't see what you're saying. If, if you think you could, yeah, he's okay, I guess you love him, fine. You know, it's just, it's the weirdest thing. From inside, it feels one way. From outside, it just doesn't make any sense. And that's just a, a little glimmer of why the world can't find any firm opinion about who Jesus is. Because here's the deal. Jesus is never going to make sense to anybody who's not ready to fall in love with Him. As long as you are trying to to have your own life and, and as a third party look over at Jesus and people who are in love with Jesus, as long as that's what you're doing... You are not going to get a clear... He does not make sense. He only makes sense to people who realize their life doesn't work and they need someone like Him to love them and that they can love. That's how it works. I mean, that is the only way Jesus ever comes into focus for anybody. Jesus will not fit into your life. He only fits if He becomes your life. You can't tack Jesus on. People try to do it all the time. But you can't tack Jesus on like an extra therapy or a training course or a certificate added to who you are. Jesus is never going to make sense. Except in this one way, He now becomes the one I love. He becomes what my life is now about. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And that's the only way He makes sense. And the Gospel of Mark, it's short, the language is simple, but it kind of forces us again and again and again to scratch our heads. If, if this was the first time you were hearing about Jesus, you'd be scratching your heads along with all these other... I wonder who He really is. I wonder. I really do wonder. And so the literary climax, actually, of the book, the turning point of the book, is this little short three verses in chapter 8, where Jesus makes His disciples come to a conclusion. Mark 8, verses 27 through 29, it's very short in Mark, it's a little longer in Luke and in Matthew, who tell the same story. But Mark 8, 27 through 29, Jesus said, and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say one of the prophets. Just the same list that we had two chapters earlier from Herod and his court. And Jesus looks at them and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Or some of the translations will say, You are the Christ. Messiah and Christ are just two uh, versions of the same idea. In English, we would say, You are God's anointed. 
That's what both of those words, Christ and Messiah, mean. You are anointed by God. And that's the conclusion Peter reached and all the other disciples had reached as well. That's who you are, Jesus. You are the anointed one of God. Peter and the others confess the truth. Jesus is God's Christ. Anointed by God to make God king of our rebellious world. If the Messiah has come, it means the kingdom of God is about to be established. The kingdom of God means, we use that phrase all the time, let's remember what it means. It means God is coming back to be king of the entire universe. As He rules in heaven, He will rule over everything, even this rebellious world of ours. And if the Messiah has come, then that is starting. God is coming back to be king. And for Peter and the others to say, Jesus, I know there's a lot of static out there, a lot of people saying a lot of stuff about you. We believe that you are God's anointed God's Christ, God's Messiah. And that great things are about to happen because you're here. God's kingdom is about to come because you are here. It's going to be amazing. I mean, they are so convinced of this that a little bit later, James and John are going to hit Jesus up for cabinet positions. They say, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, could I sit on your left hand and and my brother sit on the right? And Matthew says they actually got their mom to soften Jesus up to to ask that question. They are sure Jesus is going to do this amazing thing. God's kingdom at last. This is what the Jews prayed for Sabbath after Sabbath. God, come be king again. Restore your kingdom. Take us back to the glory days of David. Look at us. 600 years we've been under the thumb of first the... Babylonians, and then the (coughs) Persians, and and then the Greeks, and now the Romans have us under their thumb. It's time to restore your kingdom. Get out the sword. Get out the white horse. Summons your armies. Summons your angels. Let's smite the infidel. Let's bring in the kingdom of God. I don't doubt that something like that is what Peter and James and John and the other disciples were thinking when they said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. They made the right confession. Jesus is the Messiah. But even at that point, they didn't understand fully what it meant. And that's why Jesus teaches this next thing that He teaches. And actually, all the Gospels record that this confession that Jesus is the Christ is coupled with the beginning of this teaching on the part of Jesus. He began to teach them. Verse 31 says that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only human concerns. Jesus says, let me explain to you 
the full meaning of what you just said when you called me the Christ. I am the Christ. I am that Son of Man that comes at the end of time so that the kingdom of God can be established, as Daniel 7 predicts. That is me. And here's what's going to happen. My journey to Jerusalem is not going to be on a white horse. My journey to Jerusalem is not going to be leading gleaming armies, slaying the Romans, defeating all the rebels. That isn't going to be my journey. My journey to Jerusalem is going to end with mockery, with rejection, with torture, and with death. Peter, bless him, he always says what's on his mind. You know? He says, Jesus, don't you even know Jewish theology? You're the Christ. God is backing you up. God has your back. You cannot die. That's just crazy. That's crazy talk, Jesus. It's interesting. Jesus looks at Peter and he sees Satan. He said, that's the, lie, that's the same lie Satan's been telling me since I was baptized. Those temptations in the wilderness turn the rocks into stone because if you start doing that, nobody's going to put you on the cross. Rule the nations of the world because if you do that, nobody's going to have the power to put you on the cross. Jump off the temple and let the angels of God swoop in and save you. Once everybody sees that, nobody's going to have the ability to put you on the cross. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Satan's been saying that to Jesus his entire ministry. Maybe even longer, but certainly his entire public ministry. And right there, coming out of his own guy, out of Peter's mouth, Satan is whispering, You know what? It'd be great, Jesus. Let's just, let's do the other Messiah. Let's not do the Messiah you're doing. Let's do this other Messiah. The white horse, the big sword, the slain enemies. Let's do that one. And Jesus says, I didn't listen then and I'm not listening now. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That's a powerful moment. Peter just said the truth and now he's spewing lies. Get behind me, Satan. And Jesus doubles down. He said, this is the deal. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be raised. And then he calls not just his disciples, but a whole crowd around him. And he begins to say this, verse 34, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. It's been said many times, we have lost most of our ability to be shocked by what Jesus said there. I have owned cross-shaped cufflinks. When I was a teenager, I thought it was cool to wear a silver cross around my neck. I, I don't oppose those things. I've had a fish with a cross eye. For a lapel pin at one point. I don't know what happened to any of these things. They're all lost now. We've made the cross into a decoration. Well, what did it mean? 
It meant, go pick out the tree you want to be lynched on if you decide to follow me. Go kiss the bullet that's going to be shot into your brain if you want to follow me. Go choose the club that's going to beat you senseless if you want to follow me. That's what Jesus said. Go pick out your cross right now if you want to come follow me. I don't, I can't imagine what the crowd was thinking. 600 years of pain, 600 years of oppression. The Messiah's finally here. Now we're going to get some revenge. Now we're going to get some of our own back. And Jesus says, here's the kind of Messiah I am. My enemies are going to kill me. I'm not going to kill them. And if you want to follow me, they're probably going to kill you too. At least some of you. So get ready. He says an interesting truth. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel, will save it. What good is it to gain the entire world and to forfeit your soul? What can anybody give in exchange for their soul? That's what Jesus says. He says, part of what is wrong, part of what the rebellion of this world amounts to, is the illusion human beings have that their life somehow can be preserved if they just work hard enough at it. If I just get a stronger grip on the things that make me happy, if I just fight off the threats to it and, and hold more tightly to my life, that, that I, that's never been true of human beings. Human beings can't stand on their own two feet. They've never been able to. Human beings can't preserve their lives. They aren't built that way. God built us to receive life from Him day in and day out. And then to use that life to give to others. That's what we are built for. And, and the rebellion of this world is tied up with this, this craving we have. If, I'll just, if I could just control this environment around me, then I could just get safety from this threat and that threat. And I could just put down that enemy over there and that enemy over there. I wasn't pointing to anybody specifically. That somehow, my life would be okay. And it's been a lie the whole time. The only way for you to have a life at all is for you to give your life in love to Jesus Christ. And then lo and behold, your life is there. The real human life, the real rich life, the abundant life that God has in mind. Not what we usually mean by abundant, which has something apparently to do with gold faucets. Uh, uh, but a true abundant life where I am yielded to God and God is flowing through me to do blessings. He may use my life 
to be filled with glory. He may use my life as a sacrifice. It stops mattering after a while. I have found my life by giving my life for God's kingdom, for God's purpose to Jesus Christ. Jesus gives this warning. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory and with His angels. There is a judgment day coming. There is a time when rebels will be punished. That's the end of the process that we're starting now, Jesus is saying. That day is coming, and the question is, in the meantime... Are you going to speak up for Jesus or not? It is a challenging, challenging moment. It's this great literary turning point. You know, if if there was a soundtrack to the Gospel of Mark, this is where the crescendo would be. You are the Messiah. Ta-da! Symbols clap. But then it would immediately shift to a minor key because Jesus begins to say, And this is the kind of Messiah I am. And if you follow me, this is the kind of life you will be engaged in. Jesus confessed the further truth. We will build God's kingdom in this rebellious world, not by killing the rebels, but by loving them enough to tell them the truth about Jesus even if they kill us for it. That was a lot of blanks to fill in. Let me do that one one more time. Jesus confessed the further truth. We will build God's kingdom in this rebellious world, not by killing all the rebels, but by loving them enough to tell them the truth about Jesus, even if they kill us for it. Talking about Jesus is almost the exact opposite of advertising. In advertising, I want the largest group of people to respond to my product. And so my typical strategy is to dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. The easiest, the simplest, cover up all the negative truth. Only present the positive side. Talking about Jesus is just the opposite. I'm looking for those who realize their life is not working and and they are ready to consider following in love with Jesus. That's not everybody. I should tell the truth to everybody, but not everybody's going to respond. And the people who still think, yeah, I can, I, I just grab tight enough, I can make my life work. I'm, I'm just, it's just almost working, and I could just. Put, and as long as people are in that mindset, Jesus is going to sound stupid. Or crazy? Or maybe even evil? He's not going to make sense. And we just have to be faithful in continuing to tell what we believe about Jesus. In season and out of season. Whether a lot of people agree or nobody agrees, we just got to tell the truth, Jesus says. Those precious souls who are hungry for a Savior... When they hear what we have to say, they will recognize that there's truth and they will be changed.
So church, who do you say Jesus is? Right now today, it's kind of easy in church building. Tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, who do you say Jesus is? If you won't confess me in front of this evil and adulterous generation, then I won't confess you on the judgment day, Jesus says. Who do you say Jesus is? Sometimes silence is golden. There are moments to keep quiet. But let's be honest, sometimes silence is just yellow. Don't be a coward about what you truly believe about Jesus Christ. Have the courage to say it. Don't be a jerk. But have the courage to say to the people in your life what you truly believe about Jesus Christ. You do not know what the Holy Spirit's been doing in the lives of the people around you. You do not know the full story of what's gone on and what hasn't happened and what has happened. And so you don't know who's ready and who's not. It's, we are not very good judges of the good soil. So our job is just to keep putting the seed out there. And the soil will respond when it's ready. I want each one of us in our words and in our lives to confess Jesus is the Messiah of God. If you need to respond to the invitation of God's Messiah, same invitation has been offered for 2,000 years. He can change your life if you give Him that life. He can turn you into a new person start you on a new path, fill you with new power. If you need to respond to Jesus Christ, maybe to receive baptism today to start the new life, maybe to get back on track to confess sins and, and to start over. If there's anything that we can do for you, why don't you come tell us what, how we can help as we stand and as we sing.